Welcome to the 14th episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute's podcast series, Boots Off the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldiers or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon systems, and cyber weapons. My name is Amin Lutfi, and I am the co-host for the series, along with my colleague, Alessandro Arduino. And we're glad to have with us today, Professor Joshua Reno from Binghamton University in New York. Dr. Reno is a socio-cultural anthropologist and his work more broadly explores the centrality of race in shaping everyday economic, social, and political lives. But his latest book called Military Race, The Unexpected Consequences of Permanent War Readiness extends this unique framing into race into understanding the uncanny afterlives of of military waste, such as bloated contracts, outdated planes, rusting ships, space debris, and even leftover guns. Through a discussion on the many lives of waste, we open into our podcast a new line of inquiry into what happens when the boots actually start to move off the ground. What happens with the waste that is left behind? Joshua. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, let's say to begin our discussion, I was hoping that you could give our listener a brief overview of your central argument. Why is it important to think about waste in understanding the broader consequence of war buildup? Let's say most people rarely think about waste in a systemic way, especially in the military field. It is just the excess left over and discardable material, or uh, in your work, as you brilliantly suggest, uh, there is a political, economic, and even social integral part uh, in war making. And why is that? Uh, well, thank you, Alex. And, and first, I just want to say thank you for having me uh, on your podcast. It's a, it's a very interesting and important topic. So uh, it's you know my pleasure to be here. I would say that the central argument of my book is twofold. Uh, one half you already pointed to, Alex, I think very well, which is that to use waste as a sort of central trope to think about war and war making differently. The other part of the book, I would say, is trying to encourage us, as you were saying at the start, I mean, to wonder about waste or wonder about, excuse me, the military apart from. Uh, when boots are on the ground and when war is happening. So when war is happening, the destruction is quite obvious. Um, that's what war is. It's destructive. And, and that's one of its objectives. In order to win, you not only have to destroy the enemy, but their environment and the conditions that allow them to make war. That's been understood for some time as part of modern warfare. What I think is interesting is that there's plenty of destruction waste, if you like, that happens simply being ready for war. Whether or not you're fighting, whether or not war is ongoing, if war is over, there's toxic legacies to worry about. But even if you haven't fought a war yet, you're wasting resources, materials, and even lives being ready for war. So that's the kind of crux of the book. On the one hand, thinking about war in terms of waste, and on the other hand, thinking in terms of war readiness or war preparation as a significant thing in and of itself, apart from war itself. Uh, thank you. Uh, 
If I could go to one of the one very interesting argument that you make, and if I have this, you know, correctly, is that that we normally think of military, uh, you know, contracts or sort of like firms that produce military goods as uh, charging excess, that there's sort of this greed within built in to the military industrial complex. But you give us a slightly different perspective. You know, part of this is it's, it's not exactly all greed, but it's the kind of the nature of contracts, the nature of contracts um, and, and, and that, that, for example, like, you know, the, if a screw, let's say, is for a dollar normally outside, but a military contract, you would get it for $1,000. And you said that part of that, the extra cost is all the research and design that never actually see the light of the day. And because they're military stuff, it's hard for them to do anything else with it. So I'm wondering if you could, you know, tell us a little bit more about the nature of these different contracts, because you, you give us, you, you sketch out some of them in your work. Sure. I mean, first, I think it's helpful to understand the historical background. So for about a century, military producers, military manufacturers, going back to the First World War, could say to the government when they were accused of war profiteering, they could say, look, we're taking on risk. When we are building new weapons so that you're ready for war, we don't know if they're going to sell. We don't know if they're going to be what you want. And we're taking on this risk for the nation to be ready to fight. So you have to give us more leverage, if you like, in the contract situation than you normally would give if it was a free market. If it's a sort of a free market situation, it, that's not the concern of the buyer. But because it, of that close relationship that is a century in the making, the military industrial complex can ensure higher pay, if you like, for products and services than would normally be expected. So in, I mentioned that because in isolation, it's easy for a senator or a president or something in the United States to complain that yes, a screw is, you know, you're charging a hundred times more for this screw or, you know, how, why is it, so expensive. One senator famously said, um, in the you know ten years ago or so, I'll just go to Walmart and I'll buy a bunch of pistols and I'll give them to my troops and it'll be cheaper than what you're doing, right, Northrop Grumman or whoever. Um, so what they miss is that historical and economic context, which is important. But the other side of it, which I think you were alluding to, Amim, is the social relationship involved in contracts. It's not abstract you know, entities separated from one another. It is neighbors. It is old friends. They have relationships. If they, for example, represent the DOD, the Department of Defense, or they represent Lockheed Martin or another uh, uh, EPAE or whatever, like they are, they go way back and they golf together and their children camp together and so on. They go to the same schools. So this, it's not everywhere like that, but that's often the social context that's important for relationships that shapes whether, you know, you have an ongoing connection between a company and uh, the United States military or whatever military. I mention that because I'm an anthropologist and we're more attentive to the kind of nuances of social relationships, but I also mention it because I think it does challenge, as you were suggesting, I mean, the assumption that everyone is motivated only by greed, um, that it's more, it's more complicated than that historically, and it's more complicated that, than that in actual practice. And that's kind of what I tried to do 
with some of my research was get into the communities of military contracts instead of purely following the money, find out about the relationships behind some of these contracts. And it's not based on corruption. It's based on, you know, handshake agreements and good faith partnerships that go back a long time. And another thing I'd point out is that you have communities, whole communities that are dependent on these military contracts, that if they lose them, the whole community will go into economic decline. So the stakes are even greater than making a profit. It's also keeping the you know, people at work. And those are the kinds of additional variables that I think people miss when they critique the military industrial complex, which is important to critique, but it's also simplifies the reality of the situation on the ground. Also, Joshua, your work greatly expand uh, our understanding of different world in which military was circulated. We see plane being turned into art, ship sunk to make artificial reefs, and even space debris being used as strategic military asset. Uh, I was very intrigued on, on the space part. If you can talk about uh, this category of military waste, space debris, what to produce yeah. this weight, what are the consequences, and uh, looking at the Middle East, that what our institute is looking at for a smaller country like the Emirates, just entering now in the space race, how is the situation is going to change? Yeah, it's very interesting because space is a finite resource. And that sounds absurd because we think space is so very big, but the um, orbital environment, the environment that satellites circulate within is only, uh, is, is filling up is filling up not only with working machines, satellites usually, but is also filling up with what you alluded to, Alex, space debris. And at the moment, there's something like half a million pieces of space debris floating around. And it isn't floating around harmlessly. It's moving quite fast at, that, at, uh, at, at certain altitudes and is going about as quickly as, as speeding bullets. So you have sort of this crowded orbital environment with these bullets flying around in a cloud. And when a new country like the UAE wants to enter the space race, they're entering a crowded field, literally and figuratively. Figuratively because there is already the United States, Russia, you know, France, China, all these other countries that have gotten there first, but also literally because there's less space that you can put materials into without risking them getting hurt. So that's one issue that is important to understand that space is crowded, which people don't usually think of it like that. The other thing that's important is how this pertains to the future of warfare. The future of warfare is going to mean, as it has for a long time, disrupting the communications infrastructure of your enemy. And the internet, is also something that is highly dependent on this outer space environment in, in various ways, disrupting communication satellites, shutting down people's cable access or shutting down their internet access or their communications abilities is going to be an important first step in the beginning of, uh, of an all out war with, uh, with any modern country. So part of that is having uh, opportunities to defend 
your communication infrastructure in space. And part of it is to learn how to attack your enemy's infrastructure in space. And a real problem right now that has been a problem for a while is that that crowded atmosphere of space debris is getting worse because countries, all of them, all the countries I named, certainly China, Russia, the United States, are experimenting with shooting down satellites with anti-satellite weaponry. And they're doing that because they're practicing for the future of war. But when they do that, they create more space debris. They multiply exponentially the amount of space debris that's up there because those pieces fall into other pieces, which smash into other pieces, et cetera. But the reason they're doing that is because they have to experiment with how to take down other people's satellites and defend their own. The other side of that, which you alluded to with your question, is that it's in the interest of a country like the UAE to be able to tell the difference between your satellite breaking down because it was randomly hit by a space debris iceberg, or was it shot down by your enemy? And I usually liken it to the early 20th century when submarines were invented and a ship would crash and a country would wonder, did it crash because sometimes ships sink or did it sink because a German U-boat shot it down? It's the same in space now. How can you tell if your satellite came down because of an attack or because of a deliberate attack, or was it because of an accident? And so that's the other thing that if you're the UAE entering this crowded atmosphere, you have to learn how to tell the difference between space debris and not space debris. And to do that, you need an on the ground um, set of astronomical networks that are keeping track of space debris, counting the pieces, noting their movements, figuring out their trajectories, and planning for possibly removing that litter from the orbital environment. So it's a two-pronged approach if you're the UAE. Yes, you want to launch things, but you also need to watch more carefully the skies to figure out what's happening to understand the political context of orbital space. Is this, are these countries, are some countries doing this kind of work of keeping track of debris and so on? They've been doing it since Sputnik. So Sputnik is launched in 1957, right? And it, it scares Americans and scares Westerners hugely, right? They're terrified that this Russian satellite is flying over their heads. So the US government realizes they need to start having people watching the skies and they call them death watchers. And they're, they're tasked with tracking Sputnik to figure out where it's gonna crash because if it crashes in the US, they can grab it and study it. Mm. But also because they wanna know what it's gonna do. Is it dangerous? Are they collecting sensitive data? You know, what's going on? Since then, the US government has been recruiting people to track space. The latest example of this, which I mentioned in the book, is DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Um, I think I got that. I think it's, yeah, Research Projects Agency, that's it. That's a weird acronym. Anyway, DARPA, more recently, uh, about a decade ago, started to try to recruit amateur astronomers to help them track space debris, partly for these reasons, because they need regular civilians' eyes on space, because even though space is crowded, 
I don't know if either of you have ever tried to do astronomy. It's hard to find stuff. You know, if you're with your kid with a little telescope, it's hard to figure out what's what, where's Saturn, you know, where's the moon? Well, the moon's easy, but you know what I mean? So it's, it's also hard to track all of that, those little pieces of space debris. So it's an advantage if you can get regular people, regular civilians working with you. I don't think DARPA has been hugely successful in that, but that's their ambition to create a network of sky watchers, what used to be called death watchers, to help them track space debris. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, that you bring up these amateur people that are being recruited for very militaristic purposes because 20th century we've seen has been the century of sort of professional soldiers. And with that, I want to ask you a question of about a kind of waste that, that you allude to in your work, but doesn't really come to the surface is, is inanimate um, or sort of animated ways of, of, of uh, veterans, retired, you know, surplus human military instrument, let's say. And if they can be put in the same category of the same or the same frameworks can be used, because I mean, in, in our podcast, one of the themes that we've been looking at is how militaries often don't uh, take into consideration these retired soldiers going and joining criminal organizations or sort of, you know, let's say productively more, you know, private military companies. So I'm wondering, like, how would you, how would you see these kind of retired soldiers as based or if we can see them as, as based? I, you know, it's a really interesting question. And it, you're right, it isn't something that I developed that much in the book. But one thing I do f- talk a bit about in the later chapter are mass shootings as a, as a kind of bizarre unexpected outcome of a heavily militarized society. Unexpected because the DOD, when it has a massive budget, doesn't think it's going to create mass shooters. But one of the first documented mass shootings is the one that happens in, I don't know if you're familiar, but there was a a Texas university with a clock tower shooting that many people point to and say, oh, that was the first shooting. It happens in the 60s. And, you know, the idea there is that mass shootings are public events that mostly uh, you know, involve uh, white people as victims, which is one of the reasons it's questionable whether it's the first mass shooting because there are mass shootings of Native Americans and <laughs> slaves going back centuries, but fine. So this shooting in Texas, the shooter was a retired you know, sniper from the military. And the reason that he was good at shooting people from that clock tower is because he was military trained. And there have been other shootings since then, not all of them and not most of them, but there have been some shootings over the course of the long 20th century and early 21st, where shooters were trained with military training and then used that to attack civilians in a mass shooting episode. That's the most obvious and most glaring example of what you're talking about. But there's less obvious forms, right? And veterans organizations will point to the mental impact, the mental toll taken on these men and women. And the vast majority of them are not a danger to anyone. They're a danger to themselves because they're at high risk of suicide, drug and alcohol abuse. So the real waste, if you like, of that, you know, military personnel that are let loose or you know, cut off and aren't given benefits and aren't given support, veterans aids organizations will tell you, the risk is to their families and their lives. But, you know, you're not wrong that a portion of people who can't get work or, 
or who can get better pay working in a criminal organization or working in security organizations or working in some hybrid organization like military security, right? They are going to be an asset in the global marketplace if you have um, too many people produced with those skills and they can sort of be, end up being, uh, if you like, leaking out from regular military actions, like a kind of pollutant in, in a waste-like sense, and infecting other social systems. I think that's a fair way of describing it, because most people would say it is a destructive force when people who are very good at killing are put in positions in the black market or in criminal networks. So, you know, I, I certainly would agree that 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 is a way you could look at it and critically look at, again, the waste of the military industrial complex, anyone, uh, not just the, that of the United States. But I think an even more common dimension is not those private contracted military workers. It would be people whose lives, personal lives, suffer deeply because of what they were exposed to and because they were left behind by underfunded, you know, veterans, you know, the VA being poorly run or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to extend the model that I offer of military waste. And maybe we can have a, another interview for your next book, The Boots of the Ground uh, and Military Waste Applied uh, to that field. But now I, I want to focus on your current book. And I want to ask you about uh, another argument integral to your book that is uh, permanent readiness. You suggest that preparing for war even when in peace, especially in the 20th century, led to excess buildup and waste, forced constant upgrade. With the Cold War over now and the rise of more dispersed neoliberal age, do you think that this whole idea of war readiness and constant upgrade is changing? Uh, it just come to my mind, uh, one example in, in the drone area, uh, there is the German army who recently decommissioned a global hawk. Uh, we are talking $800,000 for this drone. They were not able to make it fly in, with the civil aviation. And they just bought it and after a few months put it uh, uh, in a museum. So it's now instead of having a stockpile of depreciable weapon of their own, we can see state uh, that uh, are going to look at, uh, let's say, a just-in-time approach to procure arm. Private military company, when they needed uh, 3D printing and additive manufacturing come to my mind. But if so, uh, how will this more flexible age is going to change how West circulates? I, you know, that's a great question. And I think this is more speculative on my part, but based on some of those changes, which, you know, the just-in-time manufacturing and the, the kind of growth of post-Fordist manufacturing principles, that did not affect, some people argue that did not affect military manufacturers for a while. It affected manufacturers in many sectors, but the military was somewhat protected from that. Based on my research, they start being held more accountable after the end of the Cold War during the beginning of the war on terror um, in, the, in that second Bush administration, um, the George W. Bush. And the, the idea of instituting post-Fordist manufacturing principles in some of these sectors is associated with, you know, 
the the post Cold War drop in funding, which led to you know hundreds of bases closing, thousands of jobs lost, and um, companies consolidating. And then when budgets start going up with the war on terror, there is a kind of new approach that the DOD is taking, certainly in many sectors, that fits with this post-Fordist way of thinking. That being said, that is not the only change that's happened over the last 20 years. Another change is the global arms sales having more and more of an effect. So the example I would give is you know, new military planes that Lockheed Martin produced being uh, uh, seen as useless and unhelpful in war. Uh, they're Cold War planes, essentially. But they end up being bought and sold anyway. I think Obama wanted to eliminate that program, and he wasn't successful. Trump wanted to eliminate that program, and he wasn't successful, because both of those administrations said, this is a wasteful program. And yet, Lockheed still made its billions of dollars. And the reason they did, in part, is because they're selling them to the, uh, to the Saudi Arabia. They're selling them to you know, potentially Israel. They're selling them to England. So there's a global arms sales that, that is more robust in the world, in uh, sort of the war on terror age, age, I should say, than it was 30 years ago. So while it's true that just-in-time sorts of economic practices have shifted things, I think that there's not enough attention to global arms sales shifting the uh, center of gravity away from places like Washington, D.C., so that you can sell and you can buy and sell and plan to um, pitch your weapons to more countries on a broader scale. But I would say one bit of evidence possibly for what you're describing would be that China just recently overtook the United States in producing the most ships as the biggest Navy in the world now, I think. And, it, and it, that would have been unthinkable 20 years ago, right? I mean, for, for years, the United States has dwarfed every other country in the number of ships it has. But one of the things that's happened is that they are scrapping their excess military ships and they are eliminating this wastage to a certain, they're trying to. And as they eliminate their mothballed Navy, it's known as the um, sort of the, the ghost ships that are sort of on, on, the, on standby in case they're needed, but they're just like leaking oil into the Virginia River or whatever. Those ships are being sunk they're being turned into artificial reefs. They're being scrapped into uh, scrap metal to sell on the global uh, sort of scrap market. So we are losing some of those excess ships in places like the United States, and we're moving to more flexible production. And then you have China, which does not have those pressures that is incentivized to overproduce and to overpay for having the bragging rights of the world's biggest Navy. So I think that is an example of what you're describing, what happens when you move slowly lurch toward a flexible production model in the case of the United States is you lose the bragging rights of the biggest military, but you can claim perhaps dubiously that it's at least the cheapest big military. <laughs> which I don't know if that's true. And I don't know even if it is true, if that's something to be proud of. But, you know, that is evidence to what you're describing, surely. No, that's very interesting. I mean, if I could pick up on this point that you made about 
sort of weapons sort of at least being more dispersed with arms sales and kind of sinking into Saudi Arabia or we saw Iraq and Afghanistan. And with that, I mean, I want to ask about the two approaches to managing war waste, let's say. Uh, one that was implemented in Iraq and one that was sort of, you know, advocated but never really actualized in Afghanistan. So yeah. with Iraq, I'm thinking about these burn pits and I was reading about them recently about how there's a whole sorts of um, medical issues that are rising up of people being born. Burn pits, are, it's such a, if I'm right, it's just that they, they dig a big pit and, and stuff all the web, all, all sort of like war material of various kind and shut it down. Um, and the and it's and, and, and it's creating these these all these health costs and human costs and so on. And the other program in Afghanistan, I remember like reading a lot about it, but never it never really essentialized was this gun buyback program. Um, like had had the US instituted some kind of gun buyback program after the 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 US Soviet war, let's say. Um, how would that have changed uh, the insurgence of Taliban and so on and the whole war in Afghanistan? So I'm wondering if you could like, just say a little bit about these two approaches, the gun buyback program and the burn pits. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, in, interesting kind of model, those two approaches, because in a way that runs through different chapters of my book about whether you should destroy military objects or whether you should, if you like, recycle them by recirculating them or um, recreating them in some way. I, you know, I would say first that I don't think I appreciate, you know, the distinction you make, I think, is a is a meaningful one. I would say that they, of course, have things they're burning in Afghanistan. Right. And that, and there are um, sites that they're where, you know, for example, they have a helicopter or, a, a you know, a, a, a bit of military technology that they don't want to risk falling into Taliban hands. So they blow it up on in situ because it's cheaper than shipping it off of Afghanistan. You might as well just blow it up here. So that happens everywhere. I think that the health effects of leaving behind those toxic burn pits or those, um, you know, the, the leftover materials, letting them rot or, or destroying them. I think the environmental and health consequences are so severe and un, un, um, are misunderstood or rather, I guess a better way of putting it is they have deliberately not been well investigated, right? It's, we need more research on those toxic legacies of burn pits and of their effects on veterans. And it hasn't been in the interest of, for example, the DOD to own up to those environmental and health consequences. That's one thing. I, I think typically the risks associated with the buyback programs or broadly speaking, recirculating weapons in, in the places where you're, you're leaving behind, you know, the, the battle is over, or at least it's no longer a popular for voters. Um, the risks there would be, of course, that your, you know, small arms or other weapons are going to fuel and intensify uh, various divisions that lead to further civil war or further instability wherever you are. I would say that those risks are there, but I would rather the buyback program because one, you don't have the health and environmental consequences. And two, if, if the government is doing something and the military is doing something, at least it can create public conversation and public deliberation about the effects of it. If you're circulating those weapons and selling them off or finding people to send them to, you might be 
increasing instability. But the fact is, if, if you don't do it, they're going to get it through the black market or they're going to get it through legitimate private arms sales of other companies. So having governments involved in it, at least it allows citizens to make them accountable to someone and they can have a debate over the policy side of it. That's lost entirely if you just destroy those weapons where no one ends up being accountable typically, or if you leave it to private or black market uh, agents to supply weapons to a place. So it sounds counterintuitive because it doesn't sound like a good idea to give back weapons to people in places we think of as in danger and at war, but at least it allows for a conversation to be had. And I would always rather there be more democracy than less in these discussions, if that makes sense. I see you, you point a very important thing that is accountability and transparency. Uh, yes. Just when you were talking about this kind of waste, it popped up to my mind in the former Yugoslavia conflict, uh, the role of depleted uranium bullet uh, that uh, were used to destroy tank and then uh, it keep this tank basically alive uh, as a potential threat, uh, not only for the soldier operating in the area, but for the civilian population. And there are a lot of studies that are still controversial, if it's still uh, a risk of leukemia uh, for the people now and so on. But then now I, I want to discuss to another part of your book uh, and is how the US expanded by making, let's say, island of waste like Diego Garcia. I was wondering how that compared with the relationship between the United States with all the nations that are critical for their military, like Bahrain or even here in, in Singapore. How does the American military was circulate in these places and especially in the surrounding ocean? It's a very good question. I'd like to mention first, though, the first thing you said about uranium munitions, that you know, in, in uh, the former Yugoslavia, for example, this is a real problem. And again, is, one of, is an example of those understudied toxic legacies that we were talking about earlier. You know, for a time, they switched from uranium munitions to tungsten munitions because they thought the tungsten would be a better metal to use. And then studies emerged that tungsten could be carcinogenic. So then they withdrew tungsten from the, but there's this ongoing fear about the uncertainties of these toxic legacies that munitions can leave behind. And again, you don't have to be at war to have those legacies. You can just be ready for a war using target practice, shooting at targets, and you leave uranium legacies behind because, or tungsten legacies behind in the ground which becomes radioactive because you did target practice for 10 years. That happened in Vieques in Puerto Rico. So, you know, this is again my point about you don't even have to be at war for these legacies to exist. But going to your other question, you know, um, David Vine is an anthropologist who has a book I relied on heavily for uh, that chapter on uh, the sort of waste island strategy that I described uh, that you were mentioning, Alex. And, David Vine has an amazing book called Island of Shame, where he goes into the history of the process whereby they, they chose Diego Garcia and an island strategy for uh, their next military base. And they actually, you know, though the Navy used some of the, my memory from Vine's book is that the Navy used um, the Middle East and places like Bahrain and the navies there to help them strategize that 
approach because they were used to, certainly in the Middle East, I don't know about Southeast Asia, but in the Middle East, they were used to using islands or offshore sites for military operations. So they extended that into the Indian Ocean with Diego Garcia because that model made sense for them in the Middle East. Also that in the Middle East, they had a partnership with the United Kingdom, which was helping them in many ways to transition, of course, places like Israel, but other places as well, into new forms of post-colonial or neo-colonial arrangements. And it was, you know, that similarly was essential for the creation of Diego Garcia, which involved the British, the royal British military um, forcing out the native population of Chagossians from Diego Garcia so that they could put, uh, ins install the US military there. Singapore is complicated because it's already an overcrowded island city, but I think it's interesting because you, you would be hard to have a military base on top of the existing city. But I do think it raises an interesting point, which is thinking about um, island, island strategies, if you like, for military control. And I think that like the United States is not an island, it is this big continent, but in the late 19th century, it became obsessed with using islands to govern the oceans and using islands to govern military operations. And I think there's an elective affinity, there's a connection between the kinds of um, strategies in Southeast Asia that have been employed by say China and some of the things the United States has done historically where you're trying to gain influence without doing what Japan did. You're not trying to dominate every and invade every island. You're trying to influence every island by having nearby bases or having, we hear about all the time, North Korea or China or the United States doing operations in the South China Seas, you know, um, and you know how, how tense it is there. And that goes to your point, Alex, about how sensitive right now island hopping and island if you like islands as military strategy, how central they are still for um, war planning and war preparation. And that if a war is gonna start, it's probably be gonna, gonna be because there's some ship in you know, the South China Sea that does the wrong thing and signals the wrong threat and gets shot down or blown up and it escalates from there. But that's partly because of, a, of, of a, at this point, a century and a half of US military occupation and global hegemony. Well, century and a half, I guess at least a, a, a half a century, 70 years of the United States, but certainly it goes back to the United Kingdom and what they were doing. My point is that um, this is gonna continue this kind of like island strategies and the wasting of islands as military assets has been integral for the United States to allow for that global strategy. And that wasting of islands as I'm describing in the book is not only about say occupying islands for military bases, which again, if you have uranium munitions there are gonna get, uh, become a super fun site, become toxic, uh, have a toxic legacy, but also because of the, that occupation is often where you bury, you know, it's, an, it's islands in the Pacific where the United States buried a whole bunch of nuclear and radioactive materials or where they, practiced the hydrogen bomb on these different island populations, humans and non-humans. So there's a whole, you know, massive literature on the toxic legacy that the United States has left behind by playing with islands. And, and again, I think that, that those legacies we're seeing 
continue to this day, but we're also, it's going to be interesting to see how countries like, say, China, you know, which are similar to the United States in some ways, that it's this massive land-based continent that wants to control this oceanic sort of area uh, around its borders. It's going to be interesting to see those island strategies play out as they remain critical. Uh, thank you. To, this has been a fascinating conversation. And to end this um, interview, I want to ask you to do something anthropologists I know don't usually do, and it's uh, prophesize about the future. And it's because we've been asking this question to all of the guests who we've been having here. And, and, and it's like, what in your, in your opinion will the future of military base look like, let's say 30 years down the line? So um, that's a complicated question. I think that one we've already touched on is the way in which space war is going to be part of war in a major way in the next 30 years. It's not going to be Star Wars. It's going to be people shutting down each other's internets. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I would expect. The other thing that people say, you know, I just know what the Air Force is trying to do. I know what DARPA wants to do. And the things they want to do are, you know, for example, to have destruction without a toxic legacy. So how do you destroy a city without a toxic legacy? Well, you can't use atomic weapons because you'll end up with radioactive uh, after effects. So one of the examples they have been pursuing is this notion I mentioned in the book of rods from God, the idea of having a large, you know, like a telephone pole sized rod of tungsten that you're dangling from a satellite that you drop in a precise way so that it's going through uh, near earth orbit and dropping thousands and thousands of feet until it lands in a city. And it would destroy that city as surely as you know, an atomic bomb would because of the, how far it's dropping from. And it would not have a toxic legacy because there wouldn't be radioactivity. The toxic legacy would be whatever toxic stuff is in that city already. Like, I don't know if they have, uh, uh, if you end up destroying in industry and leaking mercury or something. But the point is, those are the sorts of things they're dreaming of because they don't like that nuclear war involves radioactive, radioactivity. They don't like the, those environmental legacies. So I would expect things like that. The other thing that's obvious, I suppose, is drones becoming more and more part of everyday life. The United States, as you both know, has this ongoing unresolved problem of police killing civilians. I, I don't think it's that hard to imagine shifting policing in the United States toward drones more and more so that you're not, you can't blame police officers anymore, which they would like. So, you know, cities are being sued for millions of dollars by these, by families of people who are wrongfully killed, typically, as you know, young black boys and men um, who are unarmed and doing nothing and, and are being murdered. So I would expect drones to enter civilian uh, sorts of policing eventually down the line. And I would see people celebrating it and saying, yay, we're defunding the police. And it's, you know, the police are no longer doing the shooting. Now we have drones. But I also think that that could be dangerous and, and a kind of a frightening reality. But that might be, of course, uh, where things are headed. And I use the example of Israel, where essentially they, they've been using drones longer than the United States to control their own cities. 
and, and close borders, not sending them to Afghanistan, but using drones locally. Um, I would expect that too. And the last thing I guess I would say that I would expect is for um, more and more, and this is more just the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, I expect Americans, for example, but also any citizens of any country to be unsure whether they're at war or not. I think the uncertainty of whether war is happening is going to, is going to continue because with the war on terror, governments learned, certainly the United States, Israel, Britain, a number of more or less Western societies learned it's not popular to be at war constantly. Even Putin was not always popular when he was engaging in certain military activities and it perceived to be ongoing and it went forever and it's never going to end in Chechnya or whatever. So it's in their interest to make the public confused about whether war is happening or not, which is why, you know, Biden was in office for a short time and he engaged in a military attack in Syria, which many people saw as, you know, essentially an attack, an implicit attack in, on Iran. Trump assassinated an Iranian military leader. Um, occasionally Iran attacks something that is, dis, you know, somewhat indirectly connected to the US. Are we at war with Iran? In a hundred years, they might say we were at war with Iran or there was a cold war with Iran. But as far as the general public's concerned, no, we're not. So, you know, war is changing as it becomes more technical and as it becomes more distributed, that because war becomes as flexible and just on time as war products, it's harder to know if we're at war or not. And I think that is so helpful for political elites and the military establishment that they're going to continue to make us confused about that. Joshua, call it, thank call you. it postmodern war, if you like. Sorry, Alex, I cut you off. So please, Joshua, thank you very much again uh, for uh, this very interesting insight. Uh, uh, when you mentioned about drone, drone is an important component of our podcast. We look at a drone swarming the Middle East battlefield, uh, refurbished drone for civilian use, uh, becoming a terrorist bomb from ISIS. Uh, but as you just mentioned in the US, I think the debate, uh, it started in New York, uh, uh, looking at Boston Dynamic drone that has been recently uh, leased to the police and yeah. the people are opponent, even if uh, it's uh, non-lethal, but still you have a drone who have no lethal capabilities uh, is still creating some uh, friction, especially with the imagination, the collective imagination that we have on drone. But uh, again, Joshua, it's been great listening to your insight. Uh, and to conclude this podcast, please just allow me to thank our BOTG group at MEI, without whom this podcast could never be possible, especially our staff, Jamalia Binte Jamal, Lin Wei Chen from event and communication team, and our associate director at Middle East Institute, Karskedia. Also, a very big and special thank to all our listeners. Please follow us on the various social media platform and send us your comment and feedback. We love to hear from you. Thank you very much.